as you may have seen from the news uh, sheet that uh, Brian puts out, we're starting a new series uh, beginning January. We're starting a series on the book of Joshua. Okay, and this is what we're going to be looking at as a church, actually between now and the end of March, before we get to Easter uh, in April. And in, in, when we get in, into the Easter season, we're going to be uh, in the Gospel of John. Um, now, I've chosen the, the book of Joshua because I felt it seemed appropriate for where I think this church is as we come into this new year. You know, we are in a situation where we are starting to seek and search for a new pastor for this church. We are in a situation where we're going to be starting to set out in a new way, all right? Just as, the, uh, as Joshua did with the Israelites when he was standing on the banks of the Jordan in that way. And therefore, I think this book can teach us um, lessons that are still applicable for our time as well uh, about how we might want to approach the year as a whole. It's so important when we read the scriptures that we, we do understand their historical context. So we need to understand Joshua, you know, in his, but the key for us li with living faith today is that we also think about and recognize the lessons that can continue to be learnt from those scriptures and apply them, not just learn them, but apply them into how we live our lives. We never do it perfectly, we know that, but if we don't start applying them, we're never going to do anything at all. Um, and also, I, I, I do that, and the reading we had of, of Isaiah earlier on, you know, I don't expect this year to go just as we think it's if we think it's going to be laid out on our own plans. It's God's plans that we were wishing to follow. So we will at times deal with things that we go, well, we didn't expect that, or we don't particularly like that. But at the same time, the key here is obviously, are we following our Lord, and do we think this is the Lord's will and way for this church here in this time? So we'll have to see how the year pans out. But don't be surprised if at times you are disappointed, and at times you might feel discouraged. And I would just say... Yeah, that's what we can learn from the book of Joshua, is how we might also persevere following the Lord into the promised land in that way. Joshua and those Israelites, standing on the bank of the Jordan, did not know what challenges they would face as they were going to enter the promised land. But the one thing they did ask of the Lord was that he might go on ahead of them, that he would lead them and he would guide them, and that they might have the grace and the courage to follow in obedience. So for those reasons and for others, I hope you'll find this study uh, instructive. Um, you can tell me in April if that was the case or not. So this morning, I've picked the, the topic of just trying to give you an introduction of the book of Joshua, which I found quite difficult because I, I quite like picking verses and having a good dig. Right, uh, just where I, I, I think. So I'm trying to give you a helicopter view, a 50,000-foot type view of the book of Joshua. Um, and let's see how, how, that, how helpful you find that or not. Um, Joshua is part of the Bible, pretty obvious statement, part of the biblical canon. So the first thing we've got to ask ourselves is where does it sit within the canon? You know, what's gone before it? Because it's there for a reason where we see it. So I'm going to start by doing a very quick recap right, from Genesis. Now, this is going to be a quick recap, but it will hopefully set the scene for what's going to start happening in Joshua. So after the story of the creation and obviously the fall of man in Genesis, we begin with Abraham. God calls one person. He calls one family through which he will redeem and bless 
the whole world. Abraham eventually has a son, Isaac, amongst others, who, turns, who in turn fathers Jacob, who in turn has 12 sons, who will become the fathers, as it were, of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, that small family group goes on, heads on down to Egypt in a time of famine, and they don't return for some 400 years, and when they're a much larger people group. And they only return because they're brought out of Egypt by the Lord. They're brought out of slavery by the Lord, led uh, through Moses. They're miraculously brought through the Red Sea into the desert where God makes a covenant with them at Mount Sinai. He gives them his laws and he reveals in doing so his character and what he desires of them. But then at that stage they balk at entering the promised land. Rather than trusting God, they are afraid of the nations they see standing against them there and so they rebel. And the result of that rebellion is they wander in the desert for 40 years. And the older generations die out. And it is the younger generation now, under the leadership of Joshua, who is going to lead them into the promised land. Now, to an onlooker, looking on at these, this group of people, as it were, on the eastern side of the Jordan, they may not think much has changed in 40 years. They're a band of refugees. They're amassed beside the Jordan River. They're greatly resembling, if you think about it, that same, another horde of people who gathered beside the Red Sea four decades earlier, faced with an apparently impossible, impossible situation as well. That earlier group had panicked. And once again, the question we're faced with is here, would this new group do the same again? The Israelites, who still faced overwhelming odds, they had no chariots or even horses. They had only primitive arms. They had an untested leader in Joshua and long-delayed marching orders from God. And yet, in another sense, a lot has changed. The older Israelites, with their fearful slave mentalities, had died off in the desert. All the older generation, in fact, apart from Joshua and Caleb. And a new generation has appeared who have decided to trust in God no matter what. When we see that in stark contrast to, the sp contrast to the spies who were sent out into the Promised Land back, back in Numbers 13, jo Joshua's scouts sent out into, into the Promised Land at this stage bring back a very different report. And we read in Joshua 2:24, the Lord has surely given us the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. In fact, unlike what has gone on before, the book of Joshua strikingly contains not a word of rebellion against a leader or grumbling against God. It is, in that sense, a good news book, a welcome relief from a discouraging tone of numbers and the fatalism of Deuteronomy, which has preceded it. As a newly appointed leader of the Israelites, Joshua took on two main tasks. Firstly, he was to lead the military campaign to take control of the land that God had promised his people. And secondly, he was to take responsibility for allocating that land out amongst the tribes. But it's striking when you look at the book that once inside Canaan, the Israelites follow God's instructions precisely even when doing so must have strained their new faith to limits. 
They give us an example of a group of people bound together in unity and acting on their faith. For example, the residents of Jericho, they'd shut themselves in behind big strong stone walls waiting the onslaught of the Israelites. But note how the Israelites spent their first week in Canaan. They spent it building a stone monument of God. They spent it performing circumcision rituals. They spent it celebrating the Passover. No conquering army had ever behaved in such a manner. They seemed to focus all their attention on God and what he required of them, and not on the enemy at all. Everything we read in the book of Joshua seems hand-picked to strike home the point that God was really in charge. It covers a period of about seven years, and Joshua, in 24 chapters, devotes only a couple of those chapters to the military campaigns. That's chapters 10 and 11. Whereas in such key events as the fall of Jericho, they get detailed coverage, emphasizing the fact that the Israelites succeeded when they relied on God and not on their military strength. Even the few negative stories in the book, such as the Battle of Ai and the deception, deception of the Gideonites, only serve to highlight what happens when the Israelites don't follow God's will. One of the key things I think we can see in the book of Joshua is that the Israelites had learnt to do God's will. They'd learnt to follow his instructions. They'd learnt to act as one body, and in doing so, they were victorious. Let us not forget, the Bible doesn't relate history for its own sake. Rather, it presents us with practical and spiritual lessons. Guided by God and obedient to his word, the nation met with unprecedented success. In fact, the book towards the end concludes with this verse, Joshua 21, verse 45. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to the house of Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. The book of Joshua is not only an account of good news, but it also provides a foundation of a much-needed breeze of hope in the Old Testament. And for this reason, writers of many hymns and spiritual songs through the entire ages have often gone back to its text for inspiration, to try and recapture the spirit of success and blessing that swept up God's people during those first years in the new land. So there's that theme of hope as well in the book. And that is something that we can look out for and draw upon as we journey through it too. It reminds us even as we face this new year, we and the new challenges that no doubt will come, that we don't do so alone. It really does make a difference when people follow God, responding to his word with obedience rather than rebellion. And the book of Joshua gives us many examples of that happening. Right in the first chapter, in verse 8 and verse 9, we read these words, Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate upon it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything that is written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you, be strong, be courageous, do not be terrified, do not be discouraged. For the Lord, the Lord your God, will be with you wherever you go. 
I think even if you took those two verses into this new year with you, then that is a great verse to take and an encouragement as well. So that's my very quick overview. And I just want to talk a little bit about the uh, next slide, please, Ian, which is, um, you probably may not be able to read all this, but basically <clears throat> this is a series we're going to go through across uh, January to March. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> but you'll already see, if you just look at that, that I'm missing out lots of the book as well. Whatever book we study, even when we study it for two or three months, we end up missing a lot of it out. Now, the reason I'm making this point is what I try and do is, as we do the series, I encourage you to read along with the whole book as we go. You know, so you will cover the bits that we're not being able to speak about from the front, and I think that's good. So then you get the whole thing. So do try. Maybe in a house group or with a friend, you know, family members. Just try and keep pace with this schedule and actually uh, get the whole book, as it were, if you're able to. So the next one, please, Ian, if you could, that's the last one. <clears throat> so again, as I said, it's all they were trying to understand the historical context, and I'm just trying to very quickly do that, uh, just to bring us all onto the same page, as it were. Um, but I want to already this morning to try and pick one lesson I think we can learn from the book of Joshua, even at 50,000 feet. And that one lesson, I think, is summed up by those words, faith, not fear. Faith, not fear. We see an example with Joshua, we see an example with the Israelites, of the people stepping out with God together. There's a real sense of unity in this as well. But they are expressing their faith. Their faith isn't just a belief in here. It's a faith that says, no, I now do this because I believe it. You know, I go with my body, as it were, my words, and all of that I am, and I come out there. You know, it's very easy when we face a big challenge to get paralysed by anxiety, to get paralysed by our fears. And I think, again, for this church, if we look out, yeah, we don't want to be paralysed by our anxieties and our fears. We want to be motivated by our faith. In following God and entering the promised land, the Israelites had been told on a number of occasions not to be afraid. And you think back, back to Jesus' teaching. You know, a number of times Jesus says to his disciples, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. But sometimes we don't hear it, do we? This was the command given to Joshua as well, to himself, at the very beginning of the book. And it was, in, as it were, God's call on him and the Israelites to choose faith over fear. Fear had been the cause of the people's failure 40 years earlier as they came through the Red Sea. They'd refused also to enter Canaan for fear of the nations that were lined up against them. In studying the book of Joshua, we can learn that if the Israelites were to be victorious, their attitude had to be one of confident faith expressed in active obedience. Faith that was evident when they obeyed the law's command to the letter as they marched around Jer Jericho for the first six, six days in just complete silence when they would much rather have preferred to get on with the fight straight away. That was an example of confident faith, faith in the Lord, doing something that wasn't, you know, from a worldly point of view, not a sensible thing to do. You've go got to go and do the battle first, haven't you? But they were honouring God in obedient action. I think also this book reminds us that God's gifts, God's blessings to us, have to be received. God gives, but 
know, we have to receive. The Israelites were given every bit of land they put their feet upon, but they had to get themselves out there to do it, to make that inheritance their own. It didn't just fall into their laps, and that's it. There's a delicate balance to be found between faith and action. The Apostle James was very clear. He summed it up like this in James chapter 2 and verse 26. He said, just as the body without the spirit is dead, anybody knows that who's seen a dead body? He's saying, so faith without deeds is dead. And that's the analogy he gives. He says, it's that dead. It's not just a bit dead. Dead. You know, it really is. So we're not, if we, you know, we're not looking here at a, we, you know, faith alone, we're looking, um, or deeds alone, we're looking at faith expressed in deeds. It's an understanding also summed up by a couple of people in history. Oliver Cromwell apparently once told his troops to trust in God and keep your powder dry, which is a nice little one, isn't it? And Charles Spurgeon, he said, pray as if it all depends on God and work as if it all depends on you. Again, wise words. I think the book of Joshua, if we go through it, in many places gives us examples of this sort of faith, faith in action, and it just constantly emphasizes the importance of active faith, faith that is expressed. In fact, if I take that thought through into the New Testament, I can take it to a place in the New Testament, which is very precious, I think, to us all, where Jesus is giving the Holy Spirit to his disciples. Let me show you the example here. This is John 14 and verse 18. Jesus says to him, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. There's the promise. And then he says, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my father and I too will love him and show myself to him. If anybody loves me, he will obey my teaching. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. But he who does not love me will not obey my teaching. Even then, in that wonderful promise in the New Testament of the Holy Spirit being given to the life of the believer, that promise depends on receipt of that promise by faith, a faith that is expressed in action. Proceeding with faith doesn't necessarily mean proceeding in the absence of fear but it does mean facing those fears, those anxieties, with our eyes set firmly on the sovereignty of God, who we know is far greater. Faith needs to be expressed in obedient action. You know, we're a church of maybe those are slightly older years. No problem there. But our age does not excuse us, whether we're the youngest or the oldest, from faith expressed in action. How that faith might be expressed in action can be determined sometimes by what we're able to do. But it isn't a reason not to have the expression of faith. And that's the example we get from Joshua. So to close... I do hope this study of this book over the coming weeks does provide instructive and fruitful for this church, both for individuals but also for the church together as we go into this new year. None of us know what this new year will hold. I imagine it will hold joys and sorrows for us. But let us remember that we don't enter this year on our own. But like those Israelites facing the unknown of crossing the Jordan. 
as a prayerful community, might we know the Lord Almighty goes before us into this year. And might we just ask for the grace to follow him in obedience. Paul asks a question in his letter to the Romans. He said, if God is for us, who can be against us? And that's echoed much, much earlier by one of David's psalms, Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my stronghold of my life. Of whom need I be afraid? So feeding on God's word, might we, like Joshua and those Israelites, welcome a yet unknown year that lies ahead of us. Might we welcome it with confident faith and active obedience as well. Amen.